0: This is, I'm really rich, Forbes on Trump, on Podcast One. And I'm your host, Maggie McGrath. On this show, we're diving into the world of Trump through the eyes and ears of Forbes reporters. We'll focus on the 45th president's impact on the economy, business, and wealth here in America and around the world. In this week's episode, we're going to start with a mystery of sorts, a philanthropic one. How did the WWE become the Trump Foundation's biggest donor? Then, in honor of President Trump's first 100 days in office, We're going to check in on campaign promises kept and campaign promises broken. Let's get started. First up, we have Dan Alexander. He's an associate editor at Forbes who covers Trump, his money, and the people around him. Dan, thanks for coming back.
1: Yeah, thanks for having me.
0: So you've been on the philanthropy beat a little bit recently. We have two different stories from you that look at who's been giving to Donald Trump, but we have to be careful. We have the Trump Foundation was one of your stories, and then Trump's inauguration committee is the other. But let's start with the Trump Foundation. You found an unlikely donor, or perhaps not unlikely, but... It's interesting when you say this organization, this family, is his biggest donor. So tell us about Trump and the WWE.
1: Yeah, it was really funny as I started looking through, and you're looking at all these small donations. One person donates 25000 The next person donates $50,000. And then all of a sudden, 2007, WWE hands over $4 million. Now, that might not seem like a ton of money in the context of billions that Trump has and that Vince McMahon has, But in the context of the Trump Foundation, it was basically all the money that they took in that year. And then you look two years later and a similar sort of thing happens. WWE is listed as giving a million dollars. What's tricky about it as we dive into it a little bit more is we still don't really know exactly where that money is coming from.
0: So we don't know if it's coming from WWE, the organization, or if it's coming from Vince McMahon and his family.
1: That's right. So Vince McMahon obviously is a co-founder of WWE with his wife, Linda McMahon. Linda McMahon now serves in the Trump administration. But the distinction of whether it came from them personally or for the, from the company is really, really important because this is a publicly traded company. So imagine you're a stock owner in WWE. You've bought a bunch of shares. And then all of a sudden you find out that they were giving away $4 million, which at the time was 8% of the company's net profits that year. So if you f- find out that they just handed that away to Donald Trump's foundation, you know, which is in its own right, a questionable charity, you know, it's under investigation by the New York State Attorney General right now. But even if you were just giving it to any charity and you were to say, wait a second, as a shareholder, I have a right to that money. Why are they making the decision just to give it away? And then you find out that it was to a foundation that was pretty small and that it was mostly all of the money that that foundation was, was taking in those years. The questions just sort of start to pile up. So if it indeed came from WWE, Uh, you know, that would be a serious concern for the company. Now, the company says that it came from the McMahons personally, uh, which contradicts the documents. And the company then won't provide any documents uh, to back up the claim.
0: So we have documentation saying WWE, the company, and then you have the company saying, no, it was the McMahons. But then there's no documentation proving that it's the McMahons.
1: That's right. And and there are some indications that the company is, is telling the truth here. So if you look in the in the annual report um, from 2007 and from 2009, the company does not disclose any charitable donations. And if you look at the cash flow statements, it's hard to see where $4 million would have just disappeared. There doesn't seem to be a line that's included in it. But I just kept coming back to the fact that the only hard document that I have says the exact opposite of what WWE is saying. And so it was sort of a frustrating case to work on. At the end, just sort of had to say, well... I guess I guess we'll ask the question, you know, why, why are they listed as the biggest donor?
0: Now, when I donate to charity, mm-hmm. I deduct it from my taxes. Right? Are there tax deduction documents that we can look at to clarify this?
1: Well, so we don't have the McMahon's personal tax returns. Certainly, if you're giving away $4 million, you would want to deduct that on your tax returns. Uh, for a company... You know, they, if they were giving a gift that large, typically would have to disclose it in an annual report. It's not listed there. What we do have is every public charity has to disclose all of its donors, where its money's coming from, who it's giving to, all that sort of stuff. And so in those documents, that's where we can see that it's from WWE. But again, then you start calling people and the questions pile up.
0: Let's just take a step back. Why would... WWE and or the McMahons give this much money to the Trump Foundation.
1: Yeah, well, the McMahons and Donald Trump have a long relationship together. So back in 1988, down in Atlantic City, they were hosting WrestleMania at the Trump Plaza. That's around the time that the McMahons and Trump first became friendly. And they stayed friendly over the years. In fact, the next year they hosted WrestleMania also at the Trump Plaza. And then you fast forward to when Donald actually says that he wants to run for, for office. And he's, by this point, in the WWE Hall of Fame. There's a speech that Vince McMahon gives where he talks about, you know, what a legend Donald Trump is in the context of WWE. They actually had, uh, had a, quote-unquote, battle of the billionaires in the ring where each of them uh, sort of had their own gladiator to fight on their behalf. And, uh, and whoever won the fight got to shave the other one's head. Now, as you know, WWE is scripted. And uh, so in hindsight, it's not, it's not a really big question who was going to shave his head. <laughs> Donald <laughs> Trump wasn't going to go on national television and get his head shaved. There was just no way. So, and, and Vince McMahon was willing to do that. So.
2: Well, you won't be laughing after WrestleMania. You're going to be laughing at Donald Trump.
1: Uh, Trump's fighter won. In fact, Trump—I uh, don't know if this must have been scripted or if he, you know, if he just sort of came up with it or whatever. But outside of the ring, Trump actually delivers a full-on body slam to Vince McMahon as part of this whole act. But anyway, so they've got this sort of this funny, you know, history, and Vince McMahon says that having his head shaved was the most embarrassing moment of his life, and all of that. <laughs> and uh, and then when Donald decides that he wants to run for president. Um, the McMahons were hesitant about about endorsing him. Uh, so Linda McMahon initially was a supporter of Chris Christie. And then Chris Christie, of course, was one of the early people to endorse Donald Trump. And once he did, then the McMahons were still hesitant in, in putting their weight behind him. Uh, but once it became clear that Donald Trump was going to be the Republican nominee, McMahons are big Republicans, and they started throwing money at him. So they donated at least $7 million dollars to groups that supported his campaign. and in December, one month after the election, uh, Trump appointed Linda McMahon to be the head of the Small Business Administration.
0: But the difference between the, the money donated in 2016 versus what you found in 2007 and 2009 is that the 2016 money definitely comes from the McMahon's themselves.
1: That's correct. yeah, so the, and that's listed on the forms uh, that it comes from you know from the McMahons personally, not from WWE. Uh, which is different than what's listed on the forms of the Trump Foundation, where it says that it comes from the company.
0: There's an interesting footnote here, because you spoke with someone at WWE who, (laughs) uh, it all goes back to that battle of the billionaires. She found something in her desk drawer that she could have sold on eBay, perhaps, but I think (laughs) didn't. Can you, I, I love this story, so can you just talk about it?
1: You know, as I was trying to get to the bottom of this, I started calling up all these old WWE executives who are. There around the time that these donations hit the Trump Foundation. And so I asked him, you know, what do you think? Where did this money come from? Do you remember discussions about this or anything? And most of them said that they guessed that the money came from the McMahons personally. They didn't remember conversations that they had had uh, at the corporate level or board discussions or anything like that um, about a donation that size. But then at the end of the interviews, I asked him, you know, do you just have any funny stories about your time at WWE? And this one woman, whose name is Donna Goldsmith, she used to be the COO over at WWE. She was she was very friendly, and, and she sort of started laughing, and she was like, yeah, I I got some stories for you. And so I was like, all right, well, hit me what you got, you know. And she says, well, you know, they did this battle of the billionaires thing, and so they cut off all of the hair. And about a week later, I'm sitting in my office. And at the time, I think she was transitioning from a role in merchandising to the COO role. And Stephanie McMahon, Vince McMahon's daughter, sent her an envelope in her office mail. And she opens up the envelope. She didn't know what it was. And inside, she finds a big clump of hair. <laughs> and she realizes that the hair is Vince McMahon's hair, the hair that, that Donald Trump shaved off. And Stephanie McMahon was wondering if maybe the company might be interested in using this in some of their merchandise. So, like, for example, if you go out and buy baseball cards, it might have, like, a game-worn jersey in, like, the corner of the card. I I guess they were thinking of doing, like, an arena buzzed head or whatever on (laughs) on the card. I don't know. They decided against the idea. And as Donna Goldsmith was on her way out, she uh, was cleaning out her desk drawers and in the bottom of one of the drawers, she finds uh, this this envelope with, with Vince McMahon's hair in it, and uh, she takes one look at it and sort of shakes her head and uh, throws it right in the trash. <laughs>
0: <laughs> that's, that's quite the story. Yeah. So, end of the day, it seems like, or at least the WWE is saying that these were personal donations from Vince and Linda McMahon and not from the WWE, and is our best guess that it it was related to the billionaire battle or we don't really know.
1: Well, so that was what, that's what she guessed What Donna Goldsmith guessed, and what several other people guess, you know, the former CFO at the time in 2007, you know, he guessed that it came from the McMahon's and he said, you know, maybe it had something to do with that. And uh, several other people brought up that possibility as well. And certainly the Trump foundation's taken in other money for media appearances uh, that, that Donald did. So that was sort of what I was thinking And then I reached out to the company uh, and said, hey, you know, I want to run this by you. This is what other people are saying. Does this seem likely to you? And their response was, uh, as a company, we paid Donald Trump separately for those appearances. And uh, these donations were not connected with those appearance fees. So, again, I sort of threw up my hands. All right. Well, we have now the, the two largest donations in the recent history of the Trump Foundation, uh, and no one seems to be able to say, you know, exactly where they came from and to provide documentation to back it up.
0: Do we know what the Trump Foundation did with this money?
1: Well, yeah, we do. Uh, you know, the Trump Foundation, it's an unusual foundation. Um, it it sort, sort of took kind of a scattershot approach to philanthropy. So a lot of foundations will focus on one thing. You know, somebody might give a lot of money to their alma mater. Maybe they'll say, you know, I want to attack this disease or this problem. Um the Trump Foundation spreads out its money, um and it's given to a lot of different causes. The, the biggest recipient over the years has been something called the Police Athletic League, uh which is a group in New York City that is connected with the police and work with kids uh, you know, around New York. They've given to a whole whole host of things to a lot of uh Jewish organizations, which I think sometimes gets lost in, you know, a lot of the news that comes out, uh for instance, you know, when Sean Spicer Made the comment last week, uh, you know, about the Holocaust centers. I, I, I certainly don't want to get into the business of defending, you know, that sort of comment. But I, I do think that, uh, you know, one thing that people should note in moments like that is that Trump's foundation has given a lot of money to Jewish charities. The flip side of that, you know, the cynics would say, well, that's just because, you know, there are a lot of uh, big events in New York that are run by Jewish charities, and, th- and that might be the case, but they've given a lot of money to a lot of different causes.
0: Now, switching from the Trump Foundation to the Trump Inauguration Committee, yeah. you waded through, what, 500 pages of documents that were recently released? Is yeah, that 500
1: and some. I, I, I lost count. <laughs>
0: <laughs> and what's the takeaway from what was disclosed?
1: What was amazing is I was flipping through these pages. You know, before working on Trump, I worked on the wealth team, and so I was working on our billionaires' lists here and, So I knew a lot of these names of people who were billionaires. And so as I was flipping through, it was like every single page, there was another billionaire, another one, another one, another one. And I was really surprised by just the number of them that there were. Um, We know that Donald Trump has some close friends who are quite wealthy. Donald Trump is not known for having really deep relationships with a lot, a lot of people. And in fact, in my old role, when we were calling up billionaires around the country during the campaign, many of them were really, really reluctant to talk about Trump. And if they talked about Trump, oftentimes they did it sort of with an eye roll. Now all of a sudden he wins. And right away at the first opportunity for people to be giving money to you know, Trump, Trump efforts, uh, you have you know, nearly 30 people who are billionaires pouring money into his inauguration.
0: What name surprised you the most, if any?
1: Oh, man. W- one that struck me was Shad Khan. Um, Shad Khan owns the Jacksonville Jaguars, uh, and he has a, a car parts manufacturer that's that's made himself a fortune. But what's really interesting about Shad Khan is that he's sort of the embodiment of the American dream. Came over here from Pakistan with 500 bucks in his pocket. You know, I think he slept at a YMCA that first night. And, you know, the room and board was like $3 or something like that. Um, started watching football with some of his buddies in college and got interested in football and then ended up building this, this car parts fortune and now owns a team in the most American of sports, the NFL. Um, but it was interesting that a guy who's been so outspoken on uh, in support of immigrants, um, you know, gave a million dollars to the inaugural committee. Um, and there were other examples of, of companies and people who have some positions that you might not have affiliated with with Trump. So uh, some of them quite public. You know, Amazon has battled with Donald Trump uh, in public about, you know, whether they have too much market share and, you know, does their owner, Jeff Bezos, who also owns the Washington Post, have some axe to grind against Donald Trump. And Donald Trump said that he might, launch an investigation into Amazon, all this sort of stuff. And lo and behold, Amazon is one of the donors on there.
0: Though at a smaller amount than some of the other donors. They
1: they were nowhere near the million dollar range. They were more in like the single digit thousand, something like that.
0: I suspect, and we talked about this before we started recording, that it might just be a case of bipartisan giving so that the company as a whole can say, we donate to the left and to the right.
1: I'm sure that's true. And if you look through you know, the corporate donors, it's sort of a who's who of corporate America. You know, you've got the visas, you got Coca-Cola, you know, you got GM, Ford, you know, all the big companies are giving and I'm sure would have been giving regardless of who who the president was.
0: You were also saying to me that one of the interesting things about this disclosure was the names that weren't there, some billionaire names that we might expect. Can you take me through some of those?
1: So some of Donald Trump's closest friends uh, were not listed on there. And they seem to be people who he's given official roles. Um, So Carl Icahn is not listed. You know, you got Wilbur Ross was not listed. Carl Icahn, of course, is advising on regulatory issues. Wilbur Ross is now the Secretary of Commerce. Um, Linda McMahon wasn't giving to, you know, to the inaugural committees. Now, those appointments were all happening right around the time that people were pouring money into the inaugural committee. So I think that these guys were you know just being careful about not not crossing over there and in some ways it you know it serves as sort of a counter narrative uh to what you hear so much about with with Trump and his organization um you know that they just don't care about conflicts or anything like that and and in this case it seems like there was a concerted effort to make sure that people who were involved in the government Uh, we're not donating to the inaugural committee
0: and what does the committee money go towards
1: so the committee is responsible for planning the festivities around inauguration weekend and they also put on those festivities so um, you know they pay for any events you know so they're putting out chairs and they're hiring the staff to clean and all that sort of stuff there seems to be a lot of money left over from the inauguration and according to reports The Trump administration said that they would say where that extra money was going to go after the inauguration was done. And it seems like now they're not saying uh, where that money has gone or is going.
0: One of the headline donors in the Federal Election Commission disclosure is Sheldon Adelson. He gave $5 million, which by your accounting and other accounting is the most anyone has ever contributed to an inauguration committee. What's going on here?
1: Yeah, it's it's an enormous donation for what essentially is a weekend-long party. But, you know, Sheldon Adelson is not known for modest donations. This is a guy who disclosed giving over $100 million trying to put a Republican in the White House in 2012. Interestingly, he's also a guy who really held out on endorsing Donald Trump. Uh, As of September, Sheldon Adelson said that he was only going to give $5 million to support uh, Trump, you know, for, for his candidacy. Uh, but then toward the very end, as things were getting close, the the wallet opened up a little bit more, and he gave several more millions than that. And then here we see, after Trump actually won, then the highest donation that anyone gave in in this year was a million dollars. And so you wonder, and a lot of people gave a million dollars, so you wonder if the Trump campaign was asking people, you know, hey, can you contribute a million dollars? And Sheldon Adelson goes out and gives five times that much. Could be that, that Trump, you know, said, hey, we'd really like you to donate a little bit more just knowing that you're, that you're up for that sort of thing. Mm-hmm. Uh, or it could be that Adelson, you know, thought, hey, I, I better really make a statement here and, uh, and make a huge donation.
0: I held out before, but it's, it's safe to come out as a Trump supporter now that he's in office.
1: Yeah, exactly.
0: Now, you talk about the $1 million mark, and that is a number that we saw or that we see from a number of NFL teams, well, owners, which is interesting because a, a party line I hear among a lot of football fans and supporters say, keep politics out of my football game. So uh, who in the NFL has donated to well, the Well, the, the football game
1: is getting into politics, mm-hmm. wh- whether or not you like it. Um, but yes, yeah, so lots of different owners were uh, giving big donations. Some of them were expected. Robert Kraft, the owner of the New England Patriots, is a close friend of Trump. You know he's been seen dining at Mar-a-Lago with Trump and others. Uh, But then you have guys like Bob McNair, who owns the Houston Texans. There's on the on the uh, on the filings it lists James Haslam as one of the donors. Now uh, James Haslam is the name of the owner of the Browns, but also the name of his father. Uh, So it's not entirely clear which one that one's from. But there's also a donation from the company that Jimmy, who owns the Browns, runs. So uh, it's clear that the Haslam family is is behind it. Shad Khan, who owns the Jacksonville Jaguars, was a donor. Dan Snyder, who owns the Washington Redskins, was a donor. Stan Kroenke, who owns the Los Angeles Rams, was a donor. And all of these guys gave a million dollars. It's kind of interesting, you know, if you look at at all of the industries that gave to the Trump inaugural committee, many of them are things that you would expect, you know, guys on Wall Street, you know a handful of, of tech companies but not in big numbers. Mm-hmm. But for the NFL, which I mean to call it an industry is is sort of a generous term, you know. I mean th- this is one league. It's a very very narrow uh, group of businesses. And for the NFL to have single-handedly donated all this money, you know, I think it comes out to 6 million or something like that when the total that Trump was able to raise was 107 million. So you have, you know, 5% of all the money that he could raise around the country was from NFL owners. Uh, it's just really interesting. And then there's another group that's called NFL Ventures that's, that's connected with the NFL itself that also made, the, made a donation. Uh, so, so certainly the football guys are, are lining up behind Trump. Why do you think? I don't know, you know, it's an interesting question. There's actually some, some uh, really fascinating history here. So Donald Trump uh, was part of a effort to create a second football league that was supposed to compete with the NFL. This was years ago. And his team, which was called the New York Generals, was a big spender. They actually pulled away Doug Flutie from the NFL, and they paid him, you know, I forget what the exact number was, but it was over a million dollars per season, you know, to play in this sort of, you know, B-league football uh, group. And they then went up against the NFL in court and said the NFL is a monopoly. And the court ended up uh, ruling in favor of Trump's uh, football league and saying, you're right, the NFL is a monopoly. And because they're a monopoly, we are going to award you damages of a grand total of $1. (laughs) And so it was sort of like a tie in the end where they said, look, yes, the NFL is a monopoly, but you can't just create like, you know, some, you know, group of college football players and sue the NFL and expect that you're going to be able to extort a bunch of money out of them. So it, it's, it's sort of this, you know, this weird history where, you know, decades ago, NFL owners, many of whom are not still NFL team owners today, but were going against Donald Trump and hated Donald Trump. And here now, you know, the moment that he's elected president, you have several of them uh, racing to donate a million dollars to his inaugural committee. So, just sort of funny when you look back in hindsight. Perhaps, you know, the, the NFL wanted to protect some of its legal interests that it's been defending for decades, but I'm just not really sure.
0: Another philanthropy mystery to uncover. <laughs> That's right. So, what's next for you? Are there more monster disclosures that are coming out?
1: Yes, there are. Um, in May, there are going to be a lot of financial disclosures coming out. Uh, the White House still has not released all of the financial disclosures for the people currently serving. Uh, So we'll be going through those. And uh, I think that there's going to be a lot of interesting stuff in there. You know, I mean, this White House has more assets and more complicated assets than than any White House in recent history. And so for somebody like me, that means that there's a lot of work to do.
0: Well, have fun. Yeah, thank you. we Will do. (laughs) Dan, thanks for being here. Great. Thank you. That was reporter and editor Dan Alexander taking us inside of some of the philanthropy that Trump and his foundation have been the beneficiaries of.
3: Hey, this is Richard Marks, the host of Song Talks, right here on Podcast One. Every week, I will explore the impact music has on our lives through interviews with singers, songwriters, and other amazing guests about the classic songs that have impacted them. Check out Song Talks every Wednesday at PodcastOne.com, the Podcast One app, or subscribe at iTunes.
0: Now, because we're nearing the 100-day mark of Trump's time in office, we'd like to take stock of how he's doing when it comes to fulfilling campaign promises. Here to tell us about A Promise Fulfilled is Forbes senior editor Kelly Erb. Kelly, thanks for calling in.
4: Thanks for having me.
0: Now, you looked at what President Trump has done with his presidential salary. Let's go back to the beginning, which in this case is November. What did he say about what he would do with the money that he earns as president?
4: Well, he had actually said even before November a couple times on the campaign trail that he wasn't doing this for the money and that he didn't need the money so that he would donate his salary to charity.
2: The first thing I'm going to do is tell you that if I'm elected
4: president, I'm accepting no salary. Okay? That's not a big deal for me, but... He had originally said he wouldn't take the money. He actually told Leslie Stahl at CBS that he would take a dollar a year. And so that's something that he had pretty much consistently told uh, voters on the campaign trail. How much does the president make? Believe it or not, uh, Trump didn't know. He makes $400,000 a year, and that's actually set by statute, which means you can't actually refuse it. Um, And that was initially what he said he would do is refuse it. But Congress actually purposefully made it so that you couldn't refuse it because going all the way back to President Washington, he had originally also said that he would refuse a salary. And so Congress made it that you could not refuse it.
0: Oh, that's interesting. I wonder why.
4: I think there was a concern that if they did not have a salary or if they allowed people to decline a salary, that only people who were upper income or um, kind of, you know, the, the, the aristocracy, if you will, of the U.S. would be able to take advantage of being president. And I think they wanted to keep this idea that, you know, anybody could be president. And so I think that, you know, Congress decided that it made sense to offer a salary. And at the time, it was a pretty decent salary. I, uh, I believe it was something like $25,000. It was pretty substantial, um, even back in the 1700s. Uh, it's been stagnant for a while, but currently it's 400000
0: also pretty substantial.
4: Yes, absolutely.
0: Sean Spicer, the White House press secretary, announced on April 3rd that Trump will donate his first quarter salary. So walk us through what happened here.
4: In April, I believe, actually, he presented, uh, Sean Spicer presented a check to the National Park Service on behalf of the president. And that was the equivalent of his first quarter salary. Um, And it was actually $78,333.32 is the exact amount. And obviously, that's not a quarter of $400,000. It's what we're assuming is the after-tax uh, equivalent of the quarter-year salary, um, because even if you're president, you can't escape withholding, So, and you can't escape payroll taxes. So uh, that's the after-tax, or likely the after-tax uh, salary amount for the first quarter. And he actually presented that check to the Secretary of the Interior, and it was a charitable donation, and it was specifically earmarked for repairing historic battlefields.
0: What I find fascinating about this is he presented the check to the Secretary of the Interior. So the head of the Department of the Interior. But in his budget, President Trump seems to have written in a substantial cut for the budget for the Department of Interior. So does his payroll, does his salary donation make up for what he's cutting from the Department of Interior.
4: Well, it would if he were president for 1,200 presidential terms um, because <laughs> the amount of the uh, the donation, which was seventy eight thousand three hundred thirty three dollars and thirty two cents, is only a fraction of the 1.5 billion decrease that he had proposed. And if you do the math, actually he would have had to donate that salary, 19,148 times to equal the decrease just for the one year. Um, Mm -hmm. And you know, being a little tongue in cheek, but that works out to uh, about 1200 presidential terms.
0: That's a lot of terms. (laughs) It's hard to wrap your mind around. (laughs) it's a goodwill gesture, ultimately.
4: Yeah, I mean, you know, there was a lot of discussion on social media about what it meant. Um, There was a lot of amusement about the Tyrone Brandyburg's expression when he was handed the check. He, of course, is the superintendent for the Hoppers Ferry National Historic Park. And there were You know, a lot of a lot of folks saying that this was it was a a photo op. Um, But on the other hand, there are people who say that this is a a goodwill gesture because he didn't have to do it. Um, He said he would and he did. So, you know, there's a a lot of ways to spin it. Um, But ultimately, uh, you know, the parks got about eighty thousand dollars, which is a good thing. Um, Whether or not that's going to make up for any of the cuts, if those cuts go through, is is to be determined.
0: How does what Trump did with his first quarter salary compare to other presidents? You mentioned that President George Washington didn't want a salary. So uh, let's put this in context. How does how does this compare?
4: Well, traditionally, um, you know, despite the fact that I said early on that I think that Congress wanted to have a salary to encourage, you know, every man to be president as opposed to um, the very wealthy, historically, the people who have um, become president tend to be those who are pretty well off. Um, so they've been in positions to refuse or donate salaries. Uh, and a couple of those of note, you know, John F. Kennedy, who we all know comes from the, the wealthy Kennedy family. He did, in fact, donate his salary to charity. Hoover, likewise, donated his salary to charity. And um, and sometimes the the decision to make a donation is more symbolic For example, President Obama, who famously was actually paying off his student loans when he became president, Mm -hmm. um, he actually offered to return 5% of his salary uh, when the Treasury shut down the government, um, kind of in solidarity with the federal workers who had their pay frozen. Um, So I think that You know, the president is in a very influential position. What he does and what he says, no matter who's in office, is is kind of reflective, I think, of where the uh, country may be at any time. So I think that that Trump was, was trying to say, you know, I like people who have come before me and willing to sacrifice in order to be president.
0: It's an interesting history. What else do we need to know about Trump donating his first quarter salary?
4: Well, one of the things I was going to to mention about the donation is kind of interesting if you go back to look at some of the controversy over um, Trump's failure to release his tax returns is, you know, we've all been very, very quick to say that he would claim a charitable deduction for making this donation. Um, It's worth noting that your charitable deductions are limited to 50 percent of your adjusted gross income. So most people can't deduct their entire salaries because they don't have other income to make up for it. Um, Trump could, because chances are that his uh, adjusted gross income far exceeds what his presidential salary would be. Um, but one of the interesting things that I've, I've seen some of the other pundits kind of mention is that if he is carrying forward any losses that reduce his income to zero, um, and we don't know that he is, uh, he would actually not be able to take advantage of a charitable deduction, you know, in full. So it's kind of it's interesting to you know, it's it's very, very quick. Everyone's very quick to say, of course, he's donating it because he wants the deduction. Um, we assume he's getting that deduction. But honestly, we just don't know.
0: And we won't know until he releases his tax returns. Exactly. Now, the first quarter salary after tax, of course, went to national parks. Is there any indication of what salary for quarter two, three, and four might go to?
4: President Trump hasn't actually indicated where the money might go. Um, I think it would be safe to guess that it's going to go to some kind of veterans charity, because that is something that he campaigned pretty hard on and was heavily criticized for. He indicated that he supported the veterans, but did not produce a lot of information to indicate that he had actually financially supported veterans. Through charity. So, um, you know, if you want to look at photo ops and what might appeal to his base, especially recently, since there's been a lot of concern over what our military might be doing moving forward, I think it would be a safe bet to guess that he's going to be donating to some kind of veterans charity. But he hasn't publicly said, as far as I know, that he would be making a donation to a specific charity.
0: Now, as we are coming up on the first hundred days of his administration, lots of outlets, including our owner, taking stock of what he's done, what he hasn't done, and promises he's kept and hasn't kept. This counts as a promise kept. In your view, how important is this to his supporters?
4: I think it's interesting because, as we all know, whether or not he has been truthful and whether or not he intends to keep his promises um, has been the source of a lot of discussion, both in the press and on social media, Um, and he has not been credited with keeping a lot of the promises that he made on the campaign trail, or if he did, they've been rolled back. Um, Some great examples of that would be, you know, the the failure to repeal Obamacare and also um, the inability to get the travel ban through. So I do think that there are a lot of folks who are looking to him because they want to see a win. And I think that this is a win. Um, It's, you know, it's not a huge win, again, because when you're worth $3.7 billion it is largely symbolic to be able to give somebody an $80,000 check, but I, I do think it's something that, you know, on a checklist, he can he can put a little tick next to the box and say, I said I'd do this and I did. And I think that's important to people who are looking to him right now, you know, to say, please, please give us some, some sense that you're going to keep your promises.
0: Well, I will watch in anticipation of, of where the second quarter salary goes.
4: I think we all will.
0: That was senior editor Kelly Herb taking us behind what counts as one of the president's promises kept. And finally, we're going to turn our attention to a promise broken. In a document on DonaldJTrump.com called Donald Trump's Contract with the American Voter, then-candidate Trump vowed to direct his treasury secretary to label China as a currency manipulator. But 100 days in, President Trump has reversed that stance. Here on the phone to tell us more about what that means is Phil Levy. He's a Forbes contributor who is also a senior fellow on the global economy at the Chicago Council on Global Affairs. Phil, welcome.
2: It's a pleasure to be with you.
0: Now, you've been looking at President Trump's policy and statements on China and its role as a currency manipulator, or not, as he says. So he recently had a bit of a role reversal on policy here. Can you take us through what's what's going on here?
2: Throughout his campaign, and I think long before, had been a very sharp critic of China. And one of his claims was that China was flagrantly manipulating its currency. In the last couple of weeks, probably in the context of a summit meeting, he seems to have reversed himself on
0: that. Now, for those who aren't following the story as closely as you are, let's take a step back. What did he mean originally when he said China is a currency manipulator?
2: It can sometimes be hard to tell what he means. What most people mean when they say a country is manipulating its currency is they mean that they are holding the currency down, depreciating the currency, so as to give their exporters an advantage and to give a disadvantage to countries who are trying to send their goods back into a country.
0: Now, in your story on this on April 14th, you said that President Trump's stance on China was not a trivial part of his appeal to voters. What did you mean by that?
2: I think that one of the real problems that has been plaguing the middle class, especially in the Midwest, where I sit, it has been a discontent over the loss of manufacturing jobs. If you look at websites such as the AFL-CIO or or other labor groups, they have for years attributed this to actions taken by China, blazing red screens saying China cheats. They're sometimes told By their political leaders, we can't do anything about this, or that's not quite right, and they get very frustrated. President Trump, as a candidate, spoke to them and said, I I feel your frustration. I share these views. I'll go, I'll represent you. I will get tough on China.
0: And now what is he saying?
2: Now he's saying two things. One, he's saying if they were manipulating their currency, they've stopped. And he also said, I'm quoting here from a recent interview what am I going to do? Start a trade war with China in the middle of him, by which he means Xi Jinping, the leader of China, working on a bigger problem, frankly, with North Korea. So two explanations. One, eh, they stopped with the currency manipulation. And two, I need them for other things. Can't pick a fight right now.
0: Part of that argument reminds me of what he said about the jobs report, the jobs figures. He had said on the campaign trail that they were phony numbers. And now that he's president, he has said, uh, well, if they were phony before, they're not phony now. Um, Oh, go ahead. You're
2: right, and it's and it's not actually the reversal isn't terribly plausible if you look at the numbers. There's no, nothing dramatic that's happened in the numbers in the last few months. In fact, it's been for the last few years that China has been doing exactly the opposite of what he was accusing them of doing. That China has been trying to prop up its currency, not push it down.
0: So, what accounts for his change of heart? Is it that he realized that in recent years they've been propping up the currency and not pushing it down?
2: It's a little hard to say. I I think at the root of this is he may have developed his earlier stances before reaching a deep understanding of the issues. So it's the, the kind of claims he was making were the kind of claims people made five years ago when the economic facts on the ground were different. And I'm not sure he's been following the issue that closely. So he gets into office, he looks at some of these things, and the numbers don't really support it. That's one part of things. The other part is he feels the pressures that all his predecessors felt, that you're not going to do much by labeling China a currency manipulator. We, we treat this as this giant threshold question. Um, in fact, it, it's worth taking a moment on what happens if they actually are found to be a currency manipulator. The dramatic the you know, mall that will happen is we will start having discussions with China. <laughs> but we're already having discussions with China. So it really doesn't do very much. It just annoys the Chinese if you call them out in public. Um, so meanwhile, he's got the North Koreans to deal with um, working on nuclear missile programs. And the Chinese seem to be the best hope for doing something about that. So those are the pr- the pressures that all his predecessors faced, and he's now facing them too.
0: Now, he met with the president of China earlier in April. Do you think that meeting accounts for some of this change of heart and some of their discussions, perhaps?
2: It probably plays a role. He certainly came out of that meeting talking about things he had learned in in discussions with the Chinese leader, things like the nature of the relationship between China and North Korea, um, and how this was not an easy thing for the Chinese to control the North Koreans and would require a fair bit of work on their part. So, yes, I expect that that was part of his process of learning about the issue
0: broadly speaking is this flip-flop or reversal of policy important
2: I think it is I think President Trump is not the first to do this um, Barack Obama who came before him actually followed a somewhat similar path that and is not entirely an accident we've seen in presidential campaigns that there are critical states like Ohio part of that industrial midwest where people feel very strongly about this and you can Appeal to that workforce if you promise to get tough. President Obama had made a similar pledge during his initial campaign in 2008, mm-hmm. where he swore that he would find China to be a currency manipulator. He never did. President Trump swore that he would do this immediately upon taking office. He has not. I think the you can argue that, certainly at the moment, this is the right policy not to find China a currency manipulator. But I think there's a real danger that you'll get increasing frustration um, among the voters, that they will think, what do we have to do to have our voices heard? We keep electing ever more radical, ever more different candidates, and then they keep reverting back to establishment positions as soon as they get to Washington. If they keep going on that trend, it could be very worrisome for the country.
0: My reaction to that is, or do we just need more education as consumers of news and, and citizens? Because as you said, it It kind of provokes the Chinese, but ultimately labeling them as a currency manipulator is just leads to more discussions. So do people know that? I feel like I didn't really know that until I started digging into this.
2: You know, I'd, I'd love to take that stance. This is what I try to do professionally is sort of educate on these kinds of issues. But we've had some of these stances that are very popular in public that don't comport terribly well with the facts, and they've been out there for a long time. And I think what you saw in the last campaign Um, certainly if you looked in the Republican primaries were that the candidates who were willing to make, you know, patient explanations didn't get much of an audience. And people instead went for short quips and and pithy attacks. Mm. And so I I wish there were more of an appetite for really understanding the issues out there. Certainly not going to stop me from trying, but that has not been our recent experience. People have fairly strongly held beliefs and they seem reluctant to let them go.
0: That's human nature, I suppose. Now, broadly, what does this episode mean for the U.S.-China relationship going forward?
2: In terms of the change on currency manipulation, that's a positive change, that there was no way that China was going to do much to accommodate U.S. interests on this. In fact, partly because they're already doing what we would have them do, it gives space to turn that important discussion To other issues uh, that are more critical and where the discussions could be more productive. And some of those have to do with foreign policy. We've already talked about that in the context of North Korea. Some of them have to do with economic issues. There are a lot of practices that China is pursuing that are problematic for American business. Um, And now we can focus on those when we're not getting as distracted by currency issues.
0: Like what? What should we be watching for in terms of China's other economic policies, in your view?
2: A long standing one is how the Chinese deal with intellectual property. Another very big one is what kind of rules do the Chinese set for foreign investment in China? To what extent are very successful American businesses, like for example, financial services firms, able to penetrate the Chinese market and compete?
0: So while the, the change of position on China as a currency manipulator might be good for some of those discussions. At the end of the day, what voters might end up hearing is he changed his mind, just like Barack Obama did. And you think there's a chance that they could end up going for an even more radical candidate in the future?
2: It's what we've seen so far, is this idea that there's a real frustration. I think you know, when you get to this issue of job loss, this is broader than just a China question. The, the data says that it's not so much trade that's been wiping out a lot of these manufacturing jobs as things like automation. So if you try to address an automation problem with trade barriers, you're just going to make the situation worse. That's a hard sell, though, because if it is automation, the fixes aren't easy. And I think part of what we saw in this last election is you get very frustrated communities, and frustrated communities want are, are more open to radical change.
0: What's interesting about all of this currency manipulation discussion is some of this seems to be, as you referenced, President Trump kind of learning as he goes. And and you've talked a little bit about how uh, an in-person meeting between two world leaders is usually the culmination of diplomacy talks, whereas in in this case, in 2017, it might be the beginning. Can you talk more about that?
2: Sure. I think this is one of the biggest misconceptions people have about how the presidency works, and how diplomacy works is the thing that we see, which is the leaders getting together, having a handshake, striking a deal, is usually something that emerges after lots and lots of underlings have spent lots of time hammering out all the details. And even from the summit meeting that we just had between President Xi and President Trump, they said in 100 days we'll, we'll sort of make new progress and, and have new agreements. The work. That remains then to be done are, is from less glorified assistant secretaries and undersecretaries and deputy U.S. trade representatives. The problem for the Trump administration is that they haven't named anybody to those positions. So mm-hmm. that's usually where you get the subject experts and the regional experts and the ones who can follow through on all this stuff and also inform the president about critical aspects of these issues. Those people... Not only are they not in place, they haven't been named, they haven't been confirmed, so they're not in sight either.
0: What else will you be looking for from that region of the world going forward? You were talking to me about Korea a little bit ago.
2: Well, the North Koreans are posing a real foreign policy challenge, the idea that they're developing their nuclear capability. And that is pushing the U.S. to try to marshal forces uh, against a nuclear North Korea We've talked about what that's meant in the context of China. We just saw Vice President Mike Pence in South Korea, a U.S. ally. Curiously enough, we're not doing the same thing to bolster the South Koreans as we are with the Chinese. We're instead calling into question a trade deal that we signed just a few years ago, the U.S. Korea uh, trade agreement, and hectoring them about other things. So it's an interesting. Approach where it's we're we're being tougher on our allies it seems than uh, countries with whom we've we've sometimes had uh, a more distant relationship.
0: Well, it'll be interesting to watch all of this unfold. I'm sure in the many months ahead. Absolutely. Phil, thanks so much for joining us.
2: It's been a pleasure.
0: And that's it for this episode of Forbes on Trump. I'm Maggie McGrath. Thanks so much for listening. If you want to get in touch with a comment or a question, email us at Forbes on Trump at podcast one dot com.
3: I'm John Horn. I'm the host of Geffen Playhouse Unscripted. I'm here with our very first guest, Rain Wilson. Hi, John. It looks like I'm the first guest on the Geffen Unclothed Unscripted. Unscripted, yeah. Let's go with that. A uh, Marriage Made in Heaven, I guess. Or Westwood. Tune in for some of our exciting upcoming guests. David Copperfield, Neil Labute, Neil Patrick Harris, Josh Gad, Rita Wilson, and many more. Be sure to download new episodes every Wednesday on the Podcast One app and on iTunes. And don't forget to rate, review, and share. And, and I'm Rain Wilson, the first guest. You are no, the very first guest. This was a huge uh, mistake. in Playhouse Unscripted. Huge mistake. Lowe's knows you'll do spring right by saving on what you need to get your garden growing. We do it right, too, with incredible deals during our spring Black Friday sale, like 19-ounce Bonnie vegetable and herb plants, four for $10. And pick up five bags of Scott's Mulch in store only for just $10. Whatever's on your list, hurry in and save during our spring Black Friday sale. Do it right for less. Start with Lowe's. Offers valid through 417 while supplies last. Not valid in Alaska or Hawaii. Scott's offer valid in store only. See store for details, U.S. only. I'm Ed Donahue.